everyone, it's Chloe, and I'm so excited to share something fabulous with you, Vogue's first ever global fashion community, Vogue Club. Our members get to mingle with Vogue editors, yes, including me, and fellow fashion enthusiasts at exclusive events around the world. And that's just the start. Membership opens doors to the fashion industry, bringing you expert career advice and insider style and beauty tips. What are you waiting for? Head over to Vogue.com membership to join. And here's a little treat. Use code TRT20 and snag 20% off your membership. That's TRT20 for 20% off your ticket to Vogue Club. Are you in? This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. This is The Run Through, and I'm Chloe Mel. And I'm Cho Minardi. And this week is a big week. The September issue is out. Biggest week of the year at Vogue. I know, I know, I know. I know. And on today's episode, we're talking with my friend and former boss, Sally Singer, about writing the cover story, which is a big deal for Vogue's September issue. Sally is a, a true sort of mentor and icon for many of us who work at Vogue because she'd been at Vogue for so long in many different iterations. And she is now the head of fashion direction for Amazon, but she, in her storied career has worked at both British and American Vogue in different capacities. That's right. And if you haven't seen the cover itself, it is iconic. It's a big deal. Yes, yes. You know, it's the supers. No last names needed. Naomi, Cindy, Linda, Christie. You know who we're talking about. <laughs> I, I have to say, I it was fun to sort of watch that roll out this weekend. And people are just so excited to see these four women together. I think it's kind of a unicorn moment of they sort of transcend mortal status. It's like seeing four goddesses on a, <laughs> in a group. Yeah, people just are sort of nuts for them. And as a group, it's just extra special. I mean, I think we're used to seeing some of them individually, like Naomi. She's around. She walks. She's had such a long runway career. But I mean, Linda's much just, more Just to clarify, when Choma says she walks, she doesn't mean that, like, she's not a paraplegic. She she means she walks she in fashion She does the shows. shows. <laughs> she does the shows, is what I mean. She walks! <laughs> we, should get, we should get to our conversation, because it's pretty good. Yeah, Sally, I, I always love talking to Sally, because it's, there's such a thoughtful, articulate take in a way that you wouldn't have distilled like what is happening in the culture right now or a way to sort of see what was happening in the past and how that was creating trends and breaking barriers, et cetera. So it was just really interesting as always to hear Sally's take on these women and also what it's like to be writing a cover story in 2023. So without further ado, here is our conversation with Sally Singer. We're so happy that you were able to to zoom in for this, to, like... Um... You know, I, I mean, I know you so well. You're my you're my good friend and former boss. But can you introduce yourself to our, um, <laughs> um, sh- to our listeners? Sure. I'm, my name is Sally Singer, and I am the head of fashion direction for Amazon. Um, 
but for many years, I was the creative director and creative digital director for American Vogue, at which I worked with Choma and Chloe. <laughs> I know it's very exciting when we get to talk to people that we really like and know. I know. I know. Very well. Um, I mean, Choma, I feel like you and Sally. Yeah, I mean, Sally really Sally told set me ev- you forth on your Sally told me everything Aww. I know. So like, didn't Sally yeah. find you at the fader? Still does. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. She. I didn't think I could ever get a job at. Vogue. I just didn't think I was Vogue material. Oh and my him. god! I think when I Sally changed everyone's minds. When I uh, <laughs> your CV came across my desk just as I was exiting Vogue to run T Magazine for a few years. And I was like, that's the first person I'm going to hire. And of course, Mark Holgate, your now colleague, was like, no, no, no. The resume's here. I'm taking her. <laughs> so, I love people fighting over Choma. I, I feel so, I feel so, I feel so important. I remember going in and Sally was wearing um, this really cool Mark Jacobs dress off the shoulder black. And we were just chatting and it didn't feel like an interview. And, and I just was like, wow, this is such an awesome woman. And I still feel that way. Oh, what were you wearing? I was wearing, oh, this like, it wasn't a label that's very impressive now. I can't, it was something like random that I probably got get like Ina. So <laughs> it was like some kind of like <laughs> fake tie-dye e-cat dress. We interviewed yeah. Will Welch recently, <laughs> Sally, about Men's Fashion Week, and he was like, yeah, I remember, you know, interviewing Choma for The Fader 17 years ago, and Choma was like, I was wearing, <laughs> I remember, listed I head to toe I what know. she was wearing. It's really sad. <laughs> no, but it's, it's really like sad. the goodwill hunting of outfits. You do, but you do remember those outfits when, you know, for those when you have those sort of significant job interviews. Because I remember when I interviewed for British Vogue in the mid-90s, I was coming from the London Review of Books, and I was granted an interview with Alex Shulman, um, who was then the editor of British Vogue. And I wore an ultra-suede cropped flared pant that I bought for like five pounds somewhere, which made no sense. But I paired it significantly (laughs) with a, a cashmere double face navy Saint Laurent jacket that I had bought at the first seventh on sale from the Vogue closet. So it wow. was something oh it my was God. when she has to go back to when American Vogue still had samples from Yves Saint Laurent, who at some point stopped <laughs> sending samples to American Vogue. And I had this jacket, it was navy with gold buttons. And I thought if I wear this with the t-shirt, I'm fine because I'm wearing something that actually had been once at Vogue in America. Somewhere wow. maybe in like the Wait, 80s. do you still have of it? Of course. Well, you got the of job. I got, so and I got was, the job. It was the right outfit. I got the job, yes. <laughs> I, I, and I got the job. Sally, you wrote the cover story for the September issue. And I feel like in a way this was sort of, um, it's about the, the supermodels and looking back at their iconic big moment, but also what they're doing now. But for you, it also felt a bit like a return to your roots. You wrote so many cover stories, yeah. so many big American Vogue stories. What was it like writing this again? It was really, well, it was very fun and I'm very grateful to do it. And it was, uh, I mean, a real pleasure to spend time with those four women and e- even to be on that sort of set again. I mean, there was something quite of like back in the day about everything, which I found really, you know, it's charming and familiar and weird and strange and wonderful. When it got to the writing I could measure the distance between what I used to do and what I have to do now, like 
I could just, I spent a lot of time measuring that distance. I, I, I actually never read the stories I write once they're published. Like I just can't look at them again. Like I could turn them in. I'm like, ah, you know, <laughs> finish getting and never, never read them. Print. But I had to, I, I thought I better read the cover story I once did 20 years ago on Christy Turlington. Cause I, I did travel mm. with her and I wrote the yoga the story where she's in a yoga pose on the cover when she launched Nuala. I thought, she at least know. Oh, I love, I'd love that cover. It's a beautiful, that cover is beautiful, the story, whatever. But <laughs> I thought I Please. should at least look back and read. So I got Ms. Liana Satinstein to send me some articles from the archives um, <laughs> before she left, <laughs> had no access. And I, and I read them and I thought, oh my God, I used to spend so many words to just describe access to just describe what a room looked like what a person looked like now because of social media mm. we know what people look like we know them from their social you don't have to, oh, you don't have to waste all those words i used to write spend so many words just trying to explain what the most basic things or clothes or people or movements were so i thought oh my god i used to really overwrite things this is tedious beyond no so that's one you didn't okay that's the first <laughs> thing so i thought two writing about women now I think for all the right reasons, it's different and better. It used to be that you could spend a lot of time just explaining how like gorgeous people were and how lovely they were and like talking about their beauty. And now to talk about beauty in that way, it's, it's inherently disrespectful. It's inherently wrong. Mm. I mean, these are normatively gorgeous women. We got it. They're super, they're, they're, they supermodels for a reason. They have very long legs and very high cheekbones and looks that don't end. And, and they look really good in pictures, things that cameras like, but are they, Lots of people are beautiful. The world is beautiful. We don't have. We can't go. We can't go breathlessly on about like what people look like. And it's actually quite wrong. I know people want to know all their routines and all their secrets and how do they, but it's wrong to ask. It's actually wrong. It's demeaning. These are professional women of a certain age who've been at the top of their game for a long time. You wouldn't ask it of a man. You wouldn't ask it. Of, you know. You wouldn't ask Leah why it doesn't do something about the belly. You don't ask them why they do something. Like you don't. You just don't do that in the story. And uh, but I, I want to know. 20, I know you want to know, but 20 years ago, you could have, <laughs> I don't, I think now it's, it's a different time. It's a different time in which we talk about women. It's a different time. We talk about beauty. It's a different time. We talk about beauty standards and all of that factors into how you cover people how, and how you cover famous people and what it means to be famous. And also the notions of privacy around that. There used to be things that you want to give all the dish and you want to tell all the stories and you want that, but people are engaging with you for a reason and you have to have a kind of level of, I think you have to have a level. It's like a different level of respect. Now. I really, I, I really believe that. I, and, mm, and I felt, I, I, felt that, no, I, felt, I felt that the weight of that responsibility more than when I was much younger. It was just like, I've got all this time with, I don't know who Kate Hudson, Sandra Bullock. I'm just going to try to figure out everything I possibly, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I, I, I think it's a different moment. I mean, you know, I think actually it's funny. It's a summer of Barbie and it's like, you don't want to talk about people, even if people have played in the world the role of stereotypical Barbie, no one more than, say, Cindy Crawford. She's not mm. stereotypical Barbie. Right. You know, and we got that. We all know that. So you can't actually do much with that. Like, we just know it now. So what do you do next? That That's what I found more interesting. I'm I'm sort of fascinated, Sally, that, you know, I feel like in the in the landscape of modeling, it's like before the supermodel and after the supermodel, like it was such a sort of earth-shaking moment what was it like covering fashion it was like before christ yeah and after christ basically right. yeah they were actually the supermodels rise predated me being they in fashion at all so it, i right. they occupy a right. funny place for me because when i came to when i was at british vogue i think we did a naomi and 
we might have done a Naomi cover. We definitely did a Kate cover, but Kate was obviously the reigning supermodel of England. Like when I was a British Vogue, still right. that's where her career. Right. She she'd she'd actually outpacing when England had kept trying to get her back. And you know, at that time, it was all like Stella Tennant and uh, you know. Right. Cecilia Chancellor and kind of posh English girls with sullen expressions who we loved. Like that was British folks go to cover thing. Occasionally like a Georgina Grenville and the super seemed so big and obviously so definitive by that point, but also because of that, a little like uncool, right? you know, when I was first right. working, like they, they had moved, they were already too mad. They were too big. And then when I was, really, really, really young and like looking at magazines and that sort of amazed agog way you do when you're like 10 and you're trying to figure out how to be an adult. You know, everything was like Paulina Poroskova and Kelly LeBrock and, mm. you know, Janice Dickinson even. So I, I kind of, for me, the supers were like an entertainment phenomenon that I watched, but I didn't have to necessarily engage with. I could be both too cool for and and when I came, first came to American Vogue, Jonathan Van Meter was kind of the supermodel biographer. So whenever a supermodel story came up, like a Linda covers, I just gave it to Jonathan because he was the one who had gotten them to say, Linda to say, mm. the, I don't get out of bed for $10,000 a day, you know, whatever. Best quote, Best quote ever. ever. Oh, he got that her to say that? I didn't John, know that. That was from the JVM a, story. Wow. So because of that, I was always like, JVM, JVM. That's a good yeah, one. So. I kind of, I was probably... But you wrote the Christie one. I was, I was probably always a little afraid of them. But then when Christie launched the yoga line, Nuala, I, I agreed to do it. Because Christie always seemed d- different. And mm. I loved her. I mean, she's an astonishing person. The most interesting thing with Christie is when, I ask, when you ask the question about her, what's it like growing older? She is just thrilled at the idea of, like, no one looking at her. On, like, she doesn't... She's, she's you know... <laughs> I mean, for her, like, who cares? Wrinkles, whatever, great. Like, it's all fine because she does. She's, she just wants to ride the subway and, you know, be someone who can be known as Christy Burns and run her charities and stuff. She's actually the process that women struggle with often as they age, where they think I'm becoming more anonymous in the world. You know, that the world isn't fair. That they're, you know, less visible in some ways. For her, is like a blessing. What are some other cover stories that you remember writing that were? sort of equally outsized personas. I'm thinking of one in particular about a, a wedding uh, and a woman right. getting off oh, yeah. uh, an oh, airplane. Yeah, you needed all the details there. Melania I mean, you needed to, all yeah, of, you you needed needed to, to paint a picture. Scene. I'm sorry. Let me just say one thing. Sally might think that, you know, I don't know, her cover stories don't hold, but I actually always, whenever I write yeah. a cover story, I go back and I read Oh, that's that. so cute. <laughs> yeah, because I think they're so evocative. I remember like the Sienna Miller one, you, you know, you're you're at the airport. The setup is so cool. Like you're at the airport and you see this girl and you realize that she's Sienna Miller running, and the whole scene of it oh. is just, you can just, you're there. Now tell us about Thank Melania. You. Yeah, now tell us about Melania. <laughs> uh, okay, Melania. Um, yeah, I, yeah. I wrote them. I I went with Melania to Paris with Andre to pick her wedding dress when she was still Melania Knaus. And, um, and I went to the shows with her and to all the appointments, the various ateliers and the like. Um, and she finally settled on a John Galliano for, uh, Christian Dior. And, you know, and then I went to Mar-a-Lago for the wedding planning. And then I went to the wedding 
Oh my God. I forgot you I went did. to the wedding. Many other people were there as well. Many, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and then I, I left the wedding in a helicopter to go to the airport, to go back to Paris for the, I left we, the day after the wedding, took a helicopter to the Miami airport and flew to Paris again. What was the most sort of out sh- shocking part about that experience? And, and what wasn't shocking is my question. Okay, fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things that happens when you spend time with a, a, you know, quite a significant amount of time with a person for a story is things sort of cease to shock. You, you try to figure out who the person is and like the humanity. You know, you're not looking to find the horror mm. of them. You're trying to look to find like some sort of sense of commonality or some sorts of human story that unites all of this. And I think with Melania, I, and I think I, I wrote this in the piece, like he was her type of sexy. He was her type of guy. This is not a woman who was, you know, it wasn't like it could have been Donald Trump or, you know, Axel Rose to use like a Stephanie Seymour person or like, you know, a rock star, you know, at, you know, I mean, he, she found that kind of, um, over-the-top, blow-hard, you know, towering, orange-haired person, attractive. She found him funny. She found him charming. She found him delightful. It wasn't a, there was not cynicism there. That was her idea of attractive. And just as she was his idea of a supermodel. The run-through will be right back. I'm Molly Sims. And I'm Emma Shagormley. We are two best friends with one common obsession. Beauty. And by that, we mean everything that makes you look and feel beautiful. We tried it all and we've got your back. We'll be calling on all our favorite health experts, industry insiders, and friends to answer all your beauty questions. Consider us your beauty 411. And sometimes your 911. From how to fix brassy hair to the pros and cons of laser facials and always with a cocktail in hand. Always. So be prepared to be obsessed. Check out Lipstick on the Rim wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Maybe a chef-grade range made you want to hone your cooking skills or a high-tech tennis racket made you want to work on your backhand. I recently bought a new pair of running shoes and that made me love hitting the pavement again. Well, when we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. This podcast is supported by Macy's. Mother's Day is May 12th, and Macy's has the perfect gift guide to make picking something for mom easy this year. Shop by price, 25 and under to 100 and under. Category, like fragrances and handbags. Or gift lists, like for the mom who has everything or for grandma. Macy's has all the hottest gift ideas, like Beats headphones, Polaroid cameras, Samsung smart TVs, and more. Go to macy's.com slash gift finder to shop. That's Macy's.com slash gift finder today. And we're back. We've talked 
you and I a little bit about the magic of of Linda and how she kind of transforms in front of the camera. What was it like being on the shoot? Because I know Raphael Pavarotti right. shot this one. Yeah, and... so so this is a shoot that's being done by Raphael Pavarotti. He's like a, if listeners don't know of his work, is kind of a young superstar, I would say, in the fashion um, photography world and does really gr- terrific lighting and great studio work, which, and this was a studio shoot, and I could see why he was picked for it. Because, and again, it makes sense because so many of these women started their careers as myself, who also is master of the studio. And so it's like a sort of like a passing of the guard or passing of the baton. Um, what I found fascinating watching all of them work, but maybe Naomi's been so consistently in fashion, it's a little less remarkable to her because I've watched her in fashion for much longer, is that they, if you watch the monitor while they're making, doing what fashion models do and making shapes and, you know, laughing uproariously when there's nothing funny and all the things people have to do while people are holding, you know, fans and <laughs> waving air around them. They look in the monitor, they, they look like they're fashion at its utmost, even though I'm seeing four women I know very well, just a few feet in front of that, 12 feet back, they know how to throw a gesture, move their face, take their arm to distract you from the full physicality of them where you see exactly like this pristine fashion model in a monitor. And that's unretouched. I Linda, like with her eyes, her arms, her hands can make any shape where you're like, whoa, like she looks astonishing. And I see, you can see it with Cindy knows just how to, like Cindy is a very long planky person, but she knows how to like shift her body where she looks like she has all these incredible curves. Like, so that's what you're drawn to. Like, she knows, they, she knows how to move her body so the dress suddenly takes on a shape that is the shape, but I, I've never seen anything like it. I, I've been, and I've been on lots of shoots. I've never seen models who, who are so good at moving in front of a camera that they're producing better results than, than what's happening in real life right in front of them. Christy told me when we went to the Dozian show of Richard Avedon's work that you know, under Avedon and Dune, who worked for Avedon, she had to take movement classes. She even had to take voice classes. Like, wow. They, they, and, you know, Avedon did all those Versace campaigns with those ladies. And you think about the ones where they're all like, you know, treating men like furniture and sitting on men and various dates or even those campaigns. And they look like nothing, but every placement of the hand that wasn't done later in a studio, although Avedon constructed a lot after, as we know they kind of had thought really hard about how to make their arm look a certain, you know, sculpturally, how to make themselves work in a still picture. Uh, you mentioned in your story that uh, the, the 30 Rock episode where Tina Fey <laughs> dates John Hamm and he lives in a yes. bubble because he's so beautiful, um, like everyone treats him differently. Did you notice that to be the case with these women? Like when you went to Avedon, the opening with Christy, is it just sort of does the sea part like Moses for them? Well, I I think that it does ish. I think that they don't. I think these are four people who've been very famous for a very very long time since before they even knew that they were going to be that famous, and that is a kind of funny burden to walk around with. Do you know? I mean, it's and you know, and so even when the sea doesn't part in any that they might understand the sea still parts. I mean, people turn, the heads swivel right. on the street when you walk by with someone like Christy. With Linda, we went to a, 
a restaurant um, and the hostess said, you look very familiar to her and, or something like that. Said something like, you look fine. And Linda's like, if I was Cindy or Naomi, she would have known who I was kind of like, yeah. but you know, <laughs> I mean, Linda's been out of the public eye for a while. The woman might have known who she was, but she didn't want to say, but yeah, I think people, I think it's a lot to live with. I think it's a lot to live with that kind of lack of privacy, but it's also, it's also a form of, of, of privilege that, you know, recognizable and fantastic normative beauty is a privilege. The world does move differently. It's a weird privilege and a weird burden. What's the dynamic like between them? Because I think, you know, their friendship is sort of likely but unlikely, the fact that they're all, they've kept it over so many years. And I'm just like, what roles do they play? And you know how in friendships there are different... Well, it's, yeah, it's you know, really interesting because they're, they... they so Naomi, who's the most mercurial in many ways, right? You know, because Naomi is always on a plane, doesn't want, doesn't live anywhere except like on a plane. Like she's taking that over from Virgil. Like she's the person on the plane, global citizen. And, you know, always working and always on to the next thing and always knows, like she's the one who cares about fashion, knows who, you know, who's in and who's out in every house and who's here and who's there and who's got contracts and doesn't. Um, she's the one who also like remembers everyone's child's birthdays and is like, you know, checks in. Mm. She doesn't check in all the time, but she checks in on the most meaningful stuff, which is so fascinating. Like, because this is really her big chosen family, and she, that's so interesting. That's so not. I was that's what I, I expected. Absolutely not. Like, and so when a significant moment happens for her, and you know, she and Christy, when they were young, were roommates. She came to New York, and she lived. She shared the apartment that Christy was living in. So they were roommates when they were very young. So they have a very deep sisterly kind of bond, <laughs> like the things you did with someone when you were both actually mm. teenagers together in a city. So this project had had a few incarnations of different directors. The Supermodel Documentary. The Documentary Project, the Supermodel Documentary Project. And from when Christy was with Naomi, they had a Zoom call with Roger, who's became the one of the two directors who brought this to fruition, Roger um, Ross Williams. And it was that call where they really restarted and put the documentary, which you'll now see on Apple TV, really into motion. And it was that day. And it was because Christy and Naomi were together and they could sort of assemble everyone on Zoom. But Cindy also turned up for Naomi when Naomi's daughter was born and was also there spending time with her. So they... So when Naomi might be the sort of keeper of significant moments, but they all all turn up for her too in that way. And then Linda, Linda sort of took herself out, you know, lived in a very quiet way with her son for quite a while in New York and only revealed the disfiguration, the significant disfiguration she experienced um, after having the cool sculpt um, sessions. She revealed it to all the people in her life by an email the night before it came out in People Magazine. So all the women, that answered the question, why was she not mm -hmm. really signing on to this documentary for a while? She couldn't really commit. And it was, but she didn't, none of them knew. But there was a time before that when Linda would have these um, Christmas parties at her then, at, at her residence in the city. And she would have, you know, her world, the Anasui and myself and all of them, Mark Jacobs and Christy, and you know, they, they would all come. She was very good at throwing big dinners and having these kind of significant at home moments. And um, I think is seen as a very maternal figure 
when she allows herself the space to be that to to the rest of these women. Did she speak to you openly about the the <laughs> disfigurement and did you notice it? What was that experience like sort of navigating along the lines of what we were saying before about what yeah, you can she, ask and what you should Yeah, she revealed a lot and um, she revealed more than I felt I could put in a story. I think she has other stories to tell in other places. And I think, again, the documentary, I haven't seen the final version of it, but I think there are going to be things shared in there that are not in my story and that's fine because she has to tell everything that's happened to her in a way that she can that she wants to live with and she can move forward with when i asked linda about like how she makes decisions about you know coolscope is a non-surgical procedure right and we you know i know many people who've had it done and and I said, how do you make decisions? She said, well, you know, you go to your doctor and you see the pamphlets in the waiting room. Oh, my God. Who of us hasn't done that? You look at the pamphlets and then you- Supermodels, they're just like us. They're just like us. So, you know, you see the pamphlet. It's non-surgical. You sign off on all those waivers you have to sign off on, which we've all done. Everyone who's ever had a facial has signed a waiver for the, you know, right? The facial. Ugh. Then, like, the worst possible thing happens to you and you're completely disfigured from it. And- then it seems almost irreversible because you can't, you know, you can't use liposuction. It, I would have thought, I would have thought that that the counter thing that could happen is you'd get no result. That it's essentially a hoax. Do you know what I mean? Like, yes, right. totally. No, you, you wouldn't have this think dangerous. Yeah, that it had these really. You get too much result. Yes. Yeah. Counter results. So I mean, what a t- terrifying thing. So many, I think people maybe or trolls have wanted to say like oh isn't it like some sort of weird faustian story like the face of beauty then disfigures yourself trying to stay beautiful it's kind of you would think it was a kind of low risk decision i'll try this funny little procedure yeah. that there are pants yeah. for that so many people are doing everywhere and probably not getting much results like i don't know so no she's Scary. the thing about linda is she is kind of this wonderful, very funny, very clever woman trying to figure out a lot of things. I mean, and trying to maintain some dignity in the face of some really significant choices that went awry. You know, her her, her marriage uh, to Gerald Marie, which I talk about in the story, you know, a lot of people have hard first marriages. That's a specifically hard first marriage, you know. You know, she had a son who had a, a significant developmental delay that they that they have managed to overcome through therapies and all. And he's like, it's a terrific, actually a terrific example of, you know, a parental intervention to change certain trajectories, you know. And, you know, she had to deal with it as a single mother. Like, these are not, these are hard things. I mean, this is a hard thing. No, I was quite shocked by... Thing what she'd had to deal with. Yeah. I, I didn't know any of that. And also I was touched that because she used to, she her son is, his father is uh, Monsieur Pinot, who's mm-hmm. now with Selma Hayek. And I thought it was so touching the story that Selma Hayek sort of flew across to yeah, cook Thanksgiving dinner for her. It's sort of, uh, again, a supermodels and well, actresses are just like us. They, you know, also, cook you Thanksgiving dinner when you need it. Yeah, I thought that was lovely. Also, I mean, it's, that's, they're the kind of, healthiness of that extended family unit is really yeah. no joke because i i actually was with linda on her birthday and they texted her fhp and salma texted her to wish her a happy birthday while i was there and they would have never you know what i mean that wasn't for the for the non-camera that was just because they are a family they're an extended family unit 
which is right. very nice. That. It's very, it's very. Did you up. interview everyone separately, or were there any group interviews that you did? Like, what what was the process like for? Because it's a very difficult story to write to sort of weave Oof, together yeah. these four trajectories. I, I interviewed everyone separately. I went on set for the shoot, but as anyone who's ever had to do on set Ooh. visits as a writer, and you both know this, <laughs> no one wants you there, and you don't want to be there. Like, it's just hard. Oh, it's, it, awful. It's, it's really for color. I you're not getting much. You're not getting no, much. No, you're and not you getting much. And, and you shouldn't. I never go anymore. You really should be a fly on the wall. You should be to establish comfort. Right. They know you're there. You know they're there. You watch them work. You watch them move. You watch them interact you, with the talent. But that is not the moment to, you know, do Real Housewives wrap-up sessions or something. Like, it's not the reunion, you know? You're not Andy Cohen at the reunion at that moment. And if you were, everyone would hate you. You know, you would be, like, the ninth-class citizen yeah. on that shoot because there's already, like, wiser writer here. Everyone's subconscious, right? I know, and it's always like, who are you? Who are you? Like, uh, you know, I'm just writing stuff. Oh, my God. No, 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 no. <laughs> I've had it with, like, at various points in my career, like, who are you? I'm like, I'm the editor-in-chief of them. I, have, I own all of you guys. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god <laughs> but so no so i so i interviewed them all i interviewed them all separately the one thing that i i had not it's not that i'd forgotten but i had maybe in my mind just moved forward from and not realized just, just how famous they were at the moment of at that supermodel mm. moment they were i went back and watched a lot of like on youtube clips of tv shows they were on TV all the time, basically defending the fact that they're pretty and that they model and that they have a job that isn't a job. It's quite analogous to reality TV. It's quite analogous to Kim Kardashian on late night TV. Like, oh, she can talk. Oh, she's not just a face. It's quite, they did tons of this. They were, and they didn't have media training for it. And they were impossibly young. I mean, they were like 17, 18 years old. Right. And they were, yeah. And they were starting to be booked because there was so much entertainment television going on and such a need for more celebrities that they became, they filled the gap and they, and now I look at they did it really elegantly. And when I certainly, when I went back and mm-hmm. looked at what Cindy Crawford did for House of Style, and I watched a lot of it, even when she would do model roundtables, she asked some quite fierce questions. Like they actually talked about a lot of things. Naomi was talking about racism in the industry when she was like 18, you know, in, mm-hmm. uh, in, yeah. in Cindy's roundtables with Beverly Johnson and Lauren Hutton. You can look it up. There, there was what a, was House of Style? House of Style was, For people who don't know. House of Style was an MTV show that Cindy was the host of. She was the on-air host of it. And they would go behind the scenes at fashion shows and they'd do little stories about a day in the life of a model. And one of their like most loved ones, I think, was when they followed Naomi through Milan and she ended the day putting on like pimple cream or something. That was like one of the really <laughs> main... But the, it was a lot of the kind of content that now fuels Vogue.com and you know Instagram and what we want to... And Cindy was... It was Cindy's show, and she was learning to be a TV host. She's also learning she didn't want to be a TV host after it. When it stopped being fun, she stopped doing it. But when you go back and you look, that stuff that at the time I thought was, maybe in my life I thought it was a little silly or a little broad or a little fun, it actually was setting up a conversation about fashion that we continue to this day. It's very similar to, and this is because I know in the story, Linda at one point has says, she says in the documentary, we weren't the Beatles. But if you go back and you see the Beatles' original interviews on TV when they would come to America, they do to Kevin, and they just seemed like a breath of fresh air. They seemed like really honest and really cute and really goofy and like really untrained, but really smart. And the Supers, all four of them had that. They all had that. They had that thing like, yeah, we're helplessly cute and young and on it and at one with the culture and we're just going to 
tell it like it is. <laughs> and they, but they were kind of they loved fashion in they a way that it. sometimes models you just talk to them and it's just kind of incidental that they, you know, it's their job, but it's not their passion. But they seem to sort of love fashion and love being, you know, and and was embedding themselves with the designers and it just felt like there was a different I don't know maybe it's different to how some other models are, approach their jobs it was kind of a lifestyle for them it was, from the very beginning and and it's that's partly because of the way the industry worked then when you could do a catalog shoot like Cindy told me that she and Linda could go for three weeks on a trip for Bloomingdale's. Like they were doing catalog even oh when they were at the top wow. of the So it game. was their life. It and was so their life. They, and they would travel for significant periods together. And they would turn up, if they were all in New York, they would turn up on the shoots of the other people to hang out in the studio. Like they all, like they would all wow. turn out. And so that different. kind of support you don't think model, they don't have time to do it anymore. They're not re-compensated to do it anymore. You know, it's like a, mm. a it's a just job. a different time is in a different moment. One thing I found really interesting in terms of periodization is when, you know, Naomi had always worn vintage clothes, you know, she came from England and she had always mm-hmm. had a like cute dress from the flea market or something like that, which I sometimes have written out of my brain. Cause I only think of Naomi as like this unearthly glamazon who just turns up in the look <laughs> of the season and looks astonishing, you know, like Ed can, right. You know, you know what I mean? She's consistently always where fashion is and just a little next, you know? Yeah. Mm. But at the start, she had this, like, she really loved vintage clothes. And so she and Anna Sui were always, like, they would go to the flea markets together and they travel the world and, like, look at flea markets. And in the way that we think of Kate doing, Kate definitely did as well. But Naomi was equally had that thing. And then it was Anna who told me it's in the piece that when grunge happened, suddenly all the girls wanted to be like Naomi. They all wanted to have those clothes. They always wanted a pair of jeans and a cute top from the flea market. Whereas before, when they would come to these dinners that myself would have and all, they'd all be like wearing head to toe, whatever their last shoot was like Versace or, you know, Chanel, right. like clothes that looked like, she said, looked like their grandmothers. Suddenly they stopped dressing like their mother and they just wanted to date guys <laughs> in indie bands and look like the Kate and Naomi world and that world that was coming in from England. Wow. And, it, and right. it was the moment when models in her mind stopped looking like sort of, young girls trying to look like older women and became girls who look just like themselves. Okay, guys. Thank you. All right. Oh, thanks so much, Sally. Thank you. Bye, Sally. Thank you. Bye. So that's it for today's episode of The Run Through, but we'll be back this Thursday with a special episode. See you soon. Bye. See you Thursday. The Run Through of Vogue is a production of Condé Nast Entertainment. The show is produced by Susie Lechtenberg, Chelsea Daniel, and Alex John Burns. It's engineered by Jake Loomis, Gabe Kiroga, and Kevin Burasa. And mixed by Mike Kutchman. See you soon. Bye. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. 
and why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. From PRX.